Welcome to episode 38 of the What's Up podcast recorded by Old Ricky Astro. Today's the 27th of June, 2019. My name is Martin. I'm Ali. And I'm William. So today we're going to discuss a few stories that have caught our eye, all based around our sort of back gardens we're going to refer to. In this case, though, our garden is going to stretch out quite far into the solar system. So we've got three topics to talk about. Um, let's start off with Ali. What do you want to talk about today? I want to talk about Uranus. Excellent. Um, no, that's was, out the way. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've got to acknowledge that moment just once. Uh, but there was a, a recent story that just popped up just last week, actually, about somebody's taken a new observation of Uranus's um, ring systems. And um, for those of you that aren't aware, Uranus is the second outermost gas giant, and it's technically an icy giant because Uranus and Neptune together are made of more ices than are Jupiter and Saturn. So they're technically in a different class. They're about four times wider than the Earth. And Uranus is weird. And <laughs> That's a bit harsh. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's lots of weirdness about it. it so it's, it's always interesting when somebody does something new. Um, but they've pointed ALMA, so the submillimeter instrument in Chile, uh, they've pointed it at Uranus to study its ring system for the first time. So this is actual thermal emission from the ring particles. Um, and everyone's familiar with Saturn's rings, and they're quite well understood because we've had uh, Cassini doing a very good job of imaging that from multiple angles. And it turns out Uranus's rings are also weird. Um, and particularly the brightest of these rings and it turns out that it's a little bit warmer than they were expecting and they've got evidence that there's not a single bit of dust in the rings or a tiny amount of dust because of the observations that they've got and that's a little bit weird because just about all the other ring systems that we know of have very dusty small particles all the way up to you know bigger boulders and maybe even house-sized things in the case of Saturn's rings. But Uranus's ones seem to be centimetre-sized and up for this particular ring, which is interesting because it needs it's another thing to solve. Why why does it not have any dust? Um, so it's quite a a wee story, but I thought it was interesting because Uranus is full of things that we still don't understand. It's uh, kift, isn't it? Well, it's... it's, it's Te- technical term. <laughs> it's, mean? it's on its side. It's rolling about on its side, kind of like a... It rolls like a barrel, yeah. whereas a lot of other things are rotating with the equator of the planet pointing okay. towards the sun. So like, yeah, rather everything than, else is. So rather than like our planet's rotation axis being quite well aligned so that it goes kind of in the same way as it goes around the sun, yep. we're saying that Uranus is leaning over on its side. Yeah, so kift. Going at a, a strange angle. So yes, kift is Uranus. Yeah, so, so I think it doesn't sound silly that it, effectively it means one side has continual daylight. Well, who doesn't? You, it, would you like some stats about Uranus? Um, 42 years. 42 years 40 to process. Pole. Yeah, so right, 42 okay. years in sunlight and then 40 years of darkness long, if you're on one of the poles. darkness. It's quite a cool stat. It's also the coldest place in the solar system that we've measured with probes. Um, so I'm going to call you out on that one because that's actually not true. The coldest place in the solar system we've ever seen is on Earth. Really? Because in the labs we've created oh, spaces that are no, far don't, colder don't, than anything else. You are splitting hairs. Similarly, the hottest place that we've ever measured in the universe is inside the Large Hadron Collider during a collision. Um, so what do you think? I, I may have to give you that. Coldest naturally occurring place that we've spotted. Can I just yeah. call it the second coldest? That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Which so also is only might be the coldest place in the in the universe, not just the solar system. When because unless there's another intelligent species who are doing a similar thing, yes. which I mean there might be, but it's arguably the coldest place in the whole damn universe. Yeah. Pretty exciting. I'm a little anyway. bit nervous. I have opened a can of worms here. Oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit off topic, but it's, <laughs> but it's interesting because it's cold. It shouldn't be the coldest. 
Neptune's further out, Neptune should be colder. They're both icy giants. Why does Uranus have less internal heat coming out of it? Um, smaller? It, they can't find, there's hardly any extra heat coming from the inside. So even the Earth radiates more spare heat than Uranus does. And it basically radiates all the sunlight that falls onto it straight back into space. Um, but there's no hint that there's extra heat coming from the internals of the planet. Whereas every other planet that we can measure this for, you do see a little excess. Maybe from decay or heat in the core or radioactive elements. But there's a little bit of something. And for some reason we don't see that at Uranus. And that might be to do with the fact that it's been knocked on its side. Yeah, so the, the knocked on its side thing, I mean, could that be linked with why this ring structure seems different to other ring structures? I mean, I guess the short answer is yeah. I mean, like Saturn, <laughs> we think that the ring is from a disrupted moon or something like that. Yeah, that? and um, so you need to figure out why there's no dusty bits. So is yeah. it fresher than some of the other ring particles? They haven't had a chance to collide and smack into oh. each other enough? Or, or is, it, way is it are you older? Feels, yeah. Or something else has come through and cleared the dust away? Or all the dust is congealed onto the bigger bits? And, you know, so it's, it's lots of interesting stuff. And so it's worth saying you, this was seen with ALMA which as you say is, is a sub-millimeter telescope so it's looking at things which are wavelengths of light a little bit shorter than a radio telescope yeah, cold stuff <laughs> cold stuff and this measures dust generally doesn't it, it I mean, well, so, it, or small cool cool particles yeah well they're comparing it dust, with yeah. optical sorry infrared observations with VLT mm-hmm. um, and the comparison allows them to go there's not there's hardly any dust because the, they're getting the same sort of colour ratios from the submillimeter as they are from the infrared. And you would expect the infrared to be squelched if there was a lot of dust there. Um, ah, because yes. the submillimeter should pass through all that. But because you're seeing sort of the same thing, it means there's hardly any dust interfering with that extra light. So it's just another one of these things where you can't... What? This is the problem with Uranus. There's not much data on it. Uh, we've only once. had one probe... And everything else you've got to do Earth-based. And what's quite nice is once Webb Telescope is up and running, it's probably going to have some science um, to do pointing at the gas giants. And um, that includes the icy ones. So we will have slightly better data, this time in the mid-infrared, and maybe some of these answers will get solved. I think the best theory for why it's weird is that it's been smacked into at some point in the past by something bigger than Earth. Um, And that's one of the reasons why it's strange. And you can see that in some models, but I don't think the, I think the jury's still out on exactly what's going on. Yeah, but, and, yeah. and getting there is quite tricky. A um, bit. Actually, as a possible kind of you know, teaser to what we're about to talk about, the orbital dynamics of it <laughs> are, are kind of intriguing because we've only been there once, as you say, which was Voyager two, two did the grand tour, which she can't do for at least another sixty years or something. Fluky aligned planets, where it just went whizzing by, and but. Part of the, and it's worth highlighting as well, that's you know, 40 years ago, 30 something years ago now. So it, I'm sure it was a, a phenomenal spacecraft. It is a phenomenal spacecraft, but the, the detectors and equipment which was there is not quite the same as the sort of things we're now getting those high definition images coming back of Juno. But the other thing is that because of the orbital dynamics, it's really hard to put something in orbit around Uranus, isn't it? I think that you, yeah. you've got to get up so much speed to get there in a sensible amount of time that you then you probably need some fuel to break and slow down to get yourself into orbit but if you've got to take fuel then you're more, ma- more massive and it becomes a real nightmare which is, i think one of the reasons why it hasn't been done but i saw a paper discussing it trying to talk about plan you know crazy missions where you could could do it but it was going to be a really difficult thing mm-hmm. it's the same reason why new horizons didn't do a orbit of pluto yeah. it was going so fast to get there in reasonable time you, just, you have to swing past you can't stop and slow down it's yeah. almost like the first question you have to ask to fly by or not to fly by that's yes. just the question 
Um, so yeah, far away things, I think you're better off with flybys. And I think that leads us really nicely into a different story. Uh, so William, what story is this? Indeed, yes, it does lead us nicely to the interview which we recorded earlier with a very important person who works on the site here at the ROE with us. So we are lucky to be joined by Colin Snodgrass today, who is the deputy lead of the Comet Interceptor mission, which has just been accepted by ESA. Um, am I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm saying that right, and I hopefully yeah. you're nodding, yes. which is a good yes. sign. Um, <laughs> what's it all about? So uh, this is, uh, it's fairly, well, it does what it says on the tin. So Comet Interceptor uh, is to go and fly past a new comet. So the way that you can go and visit a new comet coming into the solar system for the first time uh, is to go and build a spacecraft that will loiter in space and wait for it. Loiter in space, yeah, <laughs> yes. that's good, I like that. Um, because the problem is with these comets is then they're coming in, um, normally we only discover them sort of months to years in advance, and it takes a decade or so to plan and build a spacecraft. So to try and meet a new one coming in, you've got to build the spacecraft before you know the target, launch it into space, and then wait for a target to come to you. So this is what this mission does, um, which is kind of different from anything we've tried before. So what are the kind of time frames you have to, to, to wait? I mean, how long does this thing lo- loiter? Uh, <laughs> oh, where does it loiter, for starters, I suppose? It? So <laughs> it, it's, it's meant to launch in 2028, and it, so it launches with the Ariel Space Telescope, which is a ESA telescope to look at exoplanet atmospheres. And that's going to go to the Sun-Earth uh, L2 point, so the Grandium point, which is where the gravity of the Sun and Earth balance out, and you can park in space with very little fuel used. This um, is the same place as JWST. Yeah, yes. it's yes. where JWST is going, yeah. it's where it's Ariel's a, going. It's, it's a busy, it's busy a, patch of space. A gravitational sweet spot. Um. <laughs> exactly. So it's a, it's a good place to park in space. So that's why you put telescopes, that's where Herschel Space Telescope was. Um, so you can put a whole bunch of things there. Um, and one of the things we're going to put there is Comet Interceptor, which is going to just kind of, yeah, hang out there, try not to crash into JWST and Ariel and all the other <laughs> things that are loitering out there. Um, and then it can wait there for a few years, basically. So um, the the main driver on how long you can wait is is building your spacecraft to survive in space for not too long. So that it'll be designed to be operating for about five years. So that's few years waiting, couple of years after leaving L2 cruising to, to intercept the comet, and then a couple of days of actual science as we go flying past the comet really fast. So, so. it's what, ten, nine years of planning, five years of loitering, <laughs> two <laughs> years of traveling for a couple of weeks. A couple, couple, couple of days, days couple of, 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 of encountering a comet in which all of the, the juiciest data is a couple of hours right around the closest approach, because it's a really fast uh, encounter because this is one of the things if you're coming if you're going to a comet that's coming in from from the Oort cloud or coming in from potentially even from outside the solar system these things are going really fast relative to you so the this thing's going to be tens of kilometers a second up to maybe sort of 80 kilometers a second in the worst case if it's some retrograde comet that's orbiting the sun the opposite way around to we are because then you just meet them really really fast yes so quite dramatic. Can I can I just check because this is quite timely that we have you here. So are you even still hungover from the official announcement? Because we should we should probably explain how all this works. I mean, yeah. So we we only got told this last week and uh, Wednesday last week. So it's what a week now that we we known about this thing and and yeah. So already, well, yeah, a couple of days of frantically emailing everyone and 
going and talking to various press things and so on and then we were already started so I'm back today in Edinburgh from yesterday I was at ESA's headquarters in in Aztec in the Netherlands where we already started the the design process so I spent yesterday talking with these engineers about you know how we actually gonna make this thing work and because they kind of take our our proposed plans and then tear them up and start again from scratch and say okay that's how we're really going to do this um, and so, yeah, there's a there's an ongoing process at ESA at the moment to kind of redesign this whole thing from 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 basically from here's the science requirements and the instruments we need. Let's make this work. I like it. So the minute the green light comes in, you're like, right, it's time to get let's, to let's work. Go go go! Yeah. So I mean, they, yeah, they they this this is the first uh, F class mission from ESA, which is fast class. And they, mm-hmm. they you know we were all sort of joking, yeah, okay, fast for ESA, it's okay, it's only nine years. But I mean, they they really they mean it. They were, you know, yeah, they were, you know, well done, you have a mission, and now go and. Books, and books and flights. They'll always be looking at you from the corner of the room, tapping their watches and going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, why, what, you know, what do you mean you still haven't figured this bit out yet? Go on and you go. So, um, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be exciting. I mean, it is actually, it is a quick turnaround, isn't it, really? It Nine is. years for planning a, a, and getting ready a space mission. Is that actually, yeah. it sounds a long time, but it's, by space standards, it's really not. It's really, it's really not, especially because, you know, the, the, the way that ESA does these things is so, yeah, so we, we kind of designed this whole mission and wrote a proposal based on some, you know, this is how it should work and had to write this in a convincing enough way that it looked like it would work. And we had some support from kind of space industry companies who build spacecraft and said, yeah, no, this will work. Can I ask Do how long ago, you know, when did that process start and were you there from day one kind of thing? Yeah, so in this case, it's also only been the year or so since they, they actually put out the call for this and announced wow. that was okay. this opportunity. So, so I mean, it's 10 years from back of envelope to actual mission. Yes, launch. exactly. <laughs> so there's, um, yeah, we had to, about this time last year, a call went out with first deadline for outline proposals would have been kind of late summer uh, last year. Um, by Christmas time, they'd kind of whittled that down to six proposals that they thought, okay, this sounds interesting, and asked each of those teams to prepare a more detailed proposal. So that's when you went and you know you spoke to someone and knew about actually building spacecraft, and you kind of wrote a forty-page or fifty-page detailed proposal. Um, and then from that one, they've now selected one, and yeah, now we go into a. A sort of initial design study with ESA and their engineers um, for the rest of this year or so. Um, Next year, they'll kick off another detailed study with space industry. Um, They'll spend a couple of years designing alternative versions, and then finally they'll pick the version they like. Okay. I'm I'm sensing this is is a silly question, but I have to ask it. Do they have any pomp or circumstance when they award a mission you know is there like a moment where they they give you a red rose Uh, i mean it was this was there was a basically there was a a panel meeting of one of the sort of senior committees in Mm. isa last week who were who were deciding on this um and essentially we got an email going well done it's yours about the same time as they they announced that to the world and they put it on the you know this nice article (laughs) on the website it's like by the way you've got this and then it's like oh good and then you know immediately you start tweeting like crazy and you know I saw some of those, yes. Yeah, yes, really. Nice that we've got you here. Who's your partner in crime, by the way? Sorry that I've forgotten who you're... It's uh, uh, Geraint Jones at uh, MSSL, okay. uh, which is part of uh, UCL in London, who's the who's the, the, the lead proposer, and, then, and me. And then there's a team of people from well, all over the world, actually, because we've got this whole European team that's leading it. But then the, this mission is also uh, 
joint with the Japanese Space Agency, JAXA, so there's a, a large group there. Mm. And there's some folk in the States as well We're working through NASA to contribute one of the instruments. So it's quite a kind of international plan. So the fact that it's kind of a fast mission, does it mean you can be more risky than other missions might be? Uh, uh, in, in some ways. I mean, in, we overall we can't. But one of the things that we're doing with this particular mission is so we have... Uh, the spacecraft that waits around at uh, L2 and then goes and flies past the comet, just before it gets to the comet, it will release a couple of smaller probes or subspacecraft. And so the main spacecraft will have a you know, reasonably safe distant flyby of the comet, about 1,000 kilometers or so from the nucleus, so still well within the, the coma and the, and the gas and the dust mm. of a comet, but not in the most kind of dense part where the, there's most danger. Um, but it will release these couple of probes that will go a bunch closer. They can take a bunch. They can take more risk. So they are designed to, you know, they should survive. But they, they, it's not mission critical that they do. So they're transmitting data back to the main spacecraft, kind of all the way in. And right. yeah, if if they don't make it out the other side, then the mission still succeeds. Yes. And are you aiming to ultimately orbit the comet, or do you only have a flyby chance? It's, and just, a, it's just a real fast flyby, okay, so, there's, so there's no way we can match speeds in orbit like we did with Rosetta. Because so you don't have the time to... We don't have the time, and most, mostly we don't have the fuel to do this. So the, um, with Rosetta, which is a short period comet, it takes six years to go around the, the sun, it, the spacecraft could spend 10 years kind of orbiting, doing flypaths of a couple of planets and building up speed to match the, the orbit. Mm. Whereas for a long period comet like this that's, that's coming in at high speed, there's just no way we could do that. So, so how, do you, how do you choose? Right? Say you get one that's got a non-optimal trajectory and you're kind of like right on the margin of whether or not we can do this. Who's the person whose weight that will be on for the yes or no, thumbs up, thumbs down for lighting the candle? Um, so there'll there'll be there'll be a, a few of us that are making these decisions. Okay. We probably won't leave it to one person. I mean, so the 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 ESA, <laughs> yeah. So there'll there'll be an ESA engineer team who will you know say whether or not they think it's it works as mm. possible, and they probably won't let us do anything too crazy because they, they tend to be more responsible people than scientists. <laughs> um, and then there'll be a science team kind of going, oh, that looks like an exciting one or this one. So in an ideal case, you've got a two or three comets potentially to choose from sure. in the period you're waiting. Um, do you also have to list you know, all the various things that you want to see happen for criteria that you're looking for? So this kind of speed and this kind of trajectory. Yeah, I mean, I think that largely it'll be we'll pick the one that works. And as soon as we find one that we know works, we'll You'll probably know. go for it. But okay. I mean, there's there's probably a long period between discovering it and kind of before you actually have to, yeah, yeah fire the rockets and go. So you can kind of keep an eye out for does something better come up in the meantime. But uh, yeah. Are, are, are you allowed to jab... Uh, other telescopes in the ribs for some help to help classify. I, I imagine we might be doing that a bit. That so would that be cool. we kind of uh, one of the, the nice things about this, the time scale of it, is that it's come. We will have the LSST survey coming online next couple of years, and this mm -hmm. is going to find so many more things uh, of every type. Um, so it, it should, you know, we it, almost certainly it will be the thing that discovers our comet, um, and then. It, it will keep going its survey. We'll get quite a lot of data from the from it anyway, just from uh, just just from from on the ongoing survey. 
but probably will also yeah be then writing proposals for everything else to say okay we want to characterize this we want to go and look at it with JWST before it comes in and we want to go and you know it's very exciting <laughs> so you, you mentioned some of the an interstellar thing so a muamua type objects which came from another system is, yeah. is that a possibility it's it's a possibility yeah in terms of uh, intercepting something there's not that much difference between an interstellar object and an orc cloud object in terms of you know sort of speed it'll be coming and so on um, the big difference is likely to be, um, well, well, two main differences. Firstly, there are going to be more Oort Cloud comets coming in. We think there's a much higher probability we'll get one of those within the, the time frame that we can reach. Um, but the other thing is if, if all interstellar objects behave like Oumuamua, um, then they don't have this big uh, coma, they don't have this activity, they don't have the tails of a comet. So you don't spot them as far out. Ah, okay, yeah. So the, the, you, for the same size of object, you can see a comet coming much further away than you can see something that behaves like an asteroid just because it has a much bigger reflecting area. You've got all of the, the coma. So um, we'll have you know many years' warning with LSST of an incoming Oort cloud comet, and that's time to fix the orbit, you know, take these observations to characterize it, be sure that's the target you want calculate and recalculate the trajectory and all, you know, be sure of all the numbers and go, yes, definitely that one, make a decision. Whereas if it's something like Oumuamua that we have, you know, only weeks, it's really uh, having a, yeah, phone up someone at ESA in the dead of night and go, hey, go, 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 find the rocks. <laughs> and uh, that, that, that will make ESA more nervous. Yes. So. Well, you have to sneak up in sort of automated fashion where the, the probe itself is doing the that's where it is and sort of refining things uh, given yeah, the distances. I, 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 so on the, you know, on approach we'll be able to use the, the, the cameras on board to sort of see the comet and refine the trajectory a bit in the kind of months and weeks leading up to it but at the very fast bit, at the very end for the flyby, yeah, it'll have to kind of autonomously track the, 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 the comet as it swings by just because the Everything happens so fast. There's no way to, to command that from Earth. I think was it one of your tweets where you suggested can we can we have some more shiny cartoons from ESA, please? Yes. Uh, for for those of you that aren't aware, the Rosetta mission had some really pretty cartoons where they sort of anthropomorphized the lander and the orbiter, and I would love to see more of those. So I I would hope that would be true. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I we already uh, spoke to the people responsible for the Rosetta cartoons. They are also very keen on doing more Yay. comic cartoons. So uh, hopefully that will happen. Very cool. Um, does it, does the name change at any point now? Are we to call it Comet Interceptor for the time being? Uh, um, that, it's Comet Interceptor for now. We okay. might may at some point rename it or or potentially name the individual three different spacecraft that make up Comet Interceptor. They might give them names at some point, but cool. uh, we haven't we haven't done that yet. It's a good name because it's a name which tells you what it is, as you say. <laughs> it's like don't, don't, so often the names are completely random and disconnected. So it's quite yeah, nice. but in the same token, if you can get to command the Snodgrass um, Comet Interceptor, <laughs> yeah, that's you, you know, I'd be pushing for that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, 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 I suspect that Graham might have some words to say about that. But yeah, yeah. very cool. But, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Colin. That's awesome to hear about, and hopefully find out more as you as the de design sort of crystallizes and be good to talk again. Yep, well, it's, uh, it's a long process from here, so I many chances to talk again about this as we go ahead. Yeah, good luck. Cheers. Mm -hmm. Alright, thanks. Thanks again to Colin for joining us for that interview. I'm sure something we'll hear a lot more about in the press, um, as well as something we'll have a chat with him over lunch on a regular basis, <laughs> all the trials and tribulations of a fast-track satellite mission. It's going to be a real challenge. Okay, and I think we've got one more story I just wanted to quickly highlight. This is one that I spotted in the news, um, which got a fair bit of press um, 
inches, column inches, I suppose, which was that uh, Curiosity, the Mars rover, has detected a methane spike and what the implications of this might be. Um, and a bit like the Uranus story, getting lots of press coverage for something that I don't think is that necessarily <laughs> a lot to say about it. I fear this was a little bit the same thing. Well, it, it is interesting um, it, and, and bizarre. It's just the fact that it's got a very tenuous link to life. Yeah, I think this Means is what gets gets dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Yeah, this is, this is Curiosity has detected a spike of methane gas. So a big plume by the standards of plumes of methane that is detected previously on Mars. So quite a big one. It's like 18 parts per million. Now, the Earth's atmosphere concentration of methane is about uh, 1,800 parts per million of methane. So, okay. Firstly, just adjust that parameter. Um, so we're not saying like you know it's discovered a swamp full of bacteria on Mars. That's not the case, but it has detected a weird spike. And also, this could just be some something else. It could be a geological process. It could be old. It could be new. It could be lots of things that have happened that's released this pocket of CO2 of um, of methane. Um, but it might not be a bacteria fart. How how, how do you ever? convince yourself it's one thing or the other is that you know is this been this isn't the first plume curiosity's seen i don't think is no i think right? but i think it's just the largest it's the largest yeah. okay yeah. so at some point if you see enough large ones does that convince you that it's not geological but no, I don't, or you I don't might never can, be able to answer it completely no i, I think the thing that's really intriguing and i don't think was expected is that it's it hints at a very dynamic system in, in that because i remember there were early measurements which were taken from uh, an orbiter which hinted at higher levels of methane and then Curiosity's first measurements went no not that high <laughs> and then actually suddenly you get a plume and, and, and it seems to vary it seems to be changing which suggests that um, whatever is there is um, not it has been generated recently I think because I think it would be um, I think they expect it would be more evenly distributed throughout the atmosphere and you wouldn't get these kind of bursts if it was a um, if it was an old reservoir uh, so that's that in itself is is kind of intriguing because it means that and, and it actually fits in with lots of other things we found out through curiosity and through all these many missions it's so funny we were saying about Uranus that you know we've had one thing there which flew past pretty damn quickly <laughs> there's loads of stuff looking at Mars and one of the we're stories spoiled we Mars, are yeah. uh, one of the stories which keeps coming back more and more is that this is a very active dynamic place it's got sort of well we know it has all seasonal variations but it also has quite a it's got um seismic activity it's got possibly sort of water very high salinity water which is sometimes there's slurry. something rolling down the slopes it, for sure yeah and it, i'm a huge fan of the the dust devil videos oh, that i think no. opportunity and spirit had and they're really pretty and that yes they're incredibly tenuous but they're physical things that you can watch roll across the landscape yeah. and leave marks in the dust i mean it, it's it's changing all in, the time. in comparison to, to to the moon which I mean, obviously, on a simple comparison, but, you know, what, something like that, which is a very dead world. There's very little happening. I mean, it's got no atmosphere, but it's it's just such, you know, it doesn't change much. Whereas this thing is a really lively, different, uh, e sort of, not ecosystem, <laughs> definitely not necessarily an ecosystem, <laughs> but a different environment um, and, and climate. Um, so this just fits into that pattern, yeah. which is really cool. Um, yeah. and, and, and there's another interesting riddle to try and solve we need more craft we need to go again <laughs> so the last time i heard about methane on mars it, they were saying it might be seasonal there's a tentative yeah so there is a seasonal variance is, is it fitting in with that pattern uh, no this is a plume that sits outside of that pattern so there's like kind of a, a broad yearly cycle of seasons but this is like a proper 
pump nothing like an outlier something, to something mess with triggered it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which is, I think you can distinguish between geological processes that create methane and biological processes that produce methane by other gases and yes. details. But Curiosity doesn't have a full lab on board. Doesn't have all the possible equipment you can ever want. So with the instrument it's got, I don't know if it can distinguish between them. Um, that's a good question because the ExoMars rover that's coming that's yeah. going to be quite exciting does it have a methane sniffer I'm imagining it probably would because it's, 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 it's going a little bit further where Curiosity yeah. can't quite just yet so. uh, Insight is that monitoring as well for I, methane? Don't know. I think it's quite it's, possible, too, it's, it's it? got the yeah. equivalent of a cup to the ground so I don't know if it's got time to sniff for methane at the same yeah. time you never know but if, then, <laughs> if this is a dynamic process are you going to be able to with either of those things find the thing that caused this so it's just a really fascinating thing and loads and loads of questions coming out of it mm. and i guess these are questions we will come back around to in future episodes so i guess that's a good place to leave it thanks yeah. very much for listening cheers all bye, bye.